Oh, where is Lord Calatinus? He should be here to greet Tarquinius. His coming threatens danger to us. Hello. The Thoroughly Good podcast brings together practitioners in the classical music world, plus the occasional commentator, audience member or passionate fan, for a bit of chat about the thing they love. Sometimes we veer off into other things not to do with classical music, but this one, this particular episode, doesn't. It remains very much on track. Podcast number 11. Seems quite an incredible thing to say. In years gone by, podcast number 11 has always been the point at which I felt an overriding need to take a break. Not so on this occasion, partly because there are another four podcasts already in the can, but mostly because arranging, recording and listening back to this one has been incredibly rewarding. That's because it's about a really important work for me. Benjamin Britten's The Rape of Lucretia is currently in rehearsal for a production at Trinity Laban, actually at Stratford Circus Arts Centre, on the 6th, 7th and 8th of July. It was the first piece of opera that resulted in me getting the form. Um, Not only that, I'm completely obsessed by Benjamin Britten. And thirdly, this podcast is one that was recorded just 20 minutes away in nearby Blackheath. That makes it the smallest distance I've ever had to travel from home in order to record an episode. I know how many people listen to this. I'm thankful, reassured and encouraged that the art form isn't dead and that this podcast is meeting the mark. But forgive me. For all the reasons stated above, this podcast is pure self-indulgence on my part. This is something I really, really wanted to record, and I loved doing it. This episode runs to just over 55 minutes, and you'll hear from director Laura Attridge and music director Jonathan Tilbrook. And then all with due formality you talk about because I don't really know how you know how would you how do you go about working together when do you see what I mean did we first meet at the auditions at the auditions yeah which was kind of wonderful because you um I suppose as a panel member 
at auditions, you don't quite know what other people are looking for, and you're sometimes, if it is a, a, someone you're working with for the first time on the rest of the creative team, you're kind of sounding out the other people you're going to be working with and whether they actually have the same reactions as you do to performers. And actually, my first impressions of Jonathan were so wonderful because uh, alongside uh, Jennifer Hamilton, who is the, the current head of department uh, at Trinity, all three of us were so in sync and we had such wonderful dialogues then that it was it was wonderful to begin our dialogues as a, as mm -hmm. a creative partnership about the singers and about the piece mm -hmm. without the pressure of sitting down and going, well, what do you think of The Rape of Lucretia? We actually began with the fundamentals of what you're looking for in a performer, which was really special. Mm -hmm. That strikes me as a bit of a... Actually, when you talk about it, it strikes me as a, a potential minefield because actually <laughs> if, you, if you do go along and you don't... If you go along to the auditions and you don't know each other and you don't necessarily know whether you will be in sync, there's a very high chance that you can walk away from the auditions going, oh, what have I walked into? Have I, am I making, am I over-dramatising No, that? you're quite right. No, I think, I think that's true. But I mean, at, at the same time, I think that, you know, that where there are kind of, is perhaps greater scope for divergence or dare I use such a word as conflict. <laughs> What's wrong with the word conflict? In, I don't in, know. In opera. Well, I mean, there, there can be creative conflict and there can just be conflict. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and both exist in the world of opera. Um, it's, uh, that's, I think, fairly well known. Um, but we were really looking at, at young singers mm. and thinking about young singers who are capable of singing the roles. Uh, I think the, the question of of how we would view the piece mm. and then develop a, 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 an idea about how to present the piece it was something that came later, really. Yeah. Um, in the first place, we were simply looking at, you know, young singers in conservatoire training, thinking, well, which are the voices that are actually ready? Who are the people who are showing that they have some kind of dramatic instincts and, and flair? Um, and, and an ability to sort of connect with the ideas of an opera rather than simply sing an aria in an mm. audition. Um, so those were the kind of things we were looking at. Uh, and in terms of, uh, so you, you've got your, the, have, the finger yeah, is there, the, the finger signal. of I must, I um, must signal. I would love to add something because I think the, the moment for me that I knew I was going to enjoy working with Jonathan, um, in addition to enjoying the audition process mm. with you, was towards the, I think it was probably on the second day of auditions, the end of the day, we just wrapped up, we found our wonderful Lucretia, the very last yes. audition, yes. and we were all packing up to, to go off to our next engagements, and I said, oh, Jonathan, we must, I, oh, I would love to meet up and discuss the opera creatively, if kind of slightly submissively, like, is that okay with you? Because usually, in my experience, you turn up on day one, you go, hi, I'm the director, and they go, hi, I'm the conductor, and then you make a piece together without having any conversation, because it's not provided for in your contract or in what you're expected to do. And I've seen it so often that you just don't, and, I, and I, I, that extends to being, I do quite a bit of work at the moment as an assistant director, and I often turn up and I meet my director for the first time on day one, and I've obviously now taken the effort to start reaching out earlier, but it's not expected and it's not guaranteed that you're, the other person is going to want to, when you reach out, that's, to reach back. And, and that's why I use the word conflict, because yeah. that, in my experience, is where it arises, because, of course, preparing an opera, both as a director and as a, as a music director, is a big undertaking and requires very, very substantial pre-preparation before you arrive in a rehearsal room. Yeah. And if those two individuals have not sat down together shared their ideas, listened to one another, 
and then gone away and let some of those things percolate. The danger is that all you do when you arrive in the rehearsal room is you find that you may very well not <laughs> yeah. have similar views, and then the cast is completely at mm. sea. Mm. So the Who one, do they listen to? Yeah, so the wonderful and thing was that Jonathan turned around and said, oh yes, I was meaning to ask you the same question. Exactly. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah, so that, I feel exactly the same way. Yeah. It's, it's lovely to have gone into this production feeling that we both wanted to have those kind of conversations far enough in advance. I get the impression that actually you've established really good rapport when you're working together quite quickly. <laughs> I'm going to risk breaking the rapport that we've established here <laughs> by just saying, could I ask you to hold your microphone like that, as in between your fingers like that? Excellent. And then bring it slightly closer in. I will explain why later, if indeed you're still interested. You may not be. Um, How am I doing? Am I oh, doing you're, well? you're, I, 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 I don't it. want to use the word perfect because I don't think you. creatively that's a great word. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, actually, I am surprised to discover that that kind of thing doesn't go on anyway. I'm almost alarmed that that mm -hmm. doesn't go on anyway, because there yeah. is an assumption made when, when me as a punter, when we look in, in the programme, that the reason this thing has happened on stage is not only because the people can sing it and they remember the lines, but because the whole team has worked together. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe that says more, far more about me than it does about the industry. Well, I think if you read read some some biographies of, uh, of of famous opera singers, opera directors, and opera conductors, you would find in those biographies stories uh, legion mm. of precisely this sort of thing happening. Yeah. What specifically are the voices that, or what kind of voices are you looking for? So before you get onto the the way in which the story is being told, what sort of voices are you looking for in that in audition phase um, I am looking and again I suppose this is I answer the question again with saying I like to disrupt what's expected in in an audition or what the norm is uh, just as I want to sort of slightly disrupt what's expected or not expected from a collaborative partnership between a director and conductor um, I always insist on making space in an audition to have some working time with the singer mm -hmm. I'm not looking for someone who can come in and do the perfect audition and sing the aria perfectly and then go away I'm looking for someone who can sing it once and then work with me and then sing it again and incorporate a couple of notes or an idea that I've offered to them. And if that person is able to work with me and put aside the technical detail of I am singing right now, then I know that they can respond to me in a rehearsal room. Um, I'm very lucky in that I have had training as a singer, so I understand and I can go into the technical detail, but I want singers who are able to go beyond that and, it, and it's hard in an audition, and I completely appreciate that. So I do a lot of work as a, as a panel member to put people at their ease and see what, in what way I can phrase things to support their progress within the 10 minutes, 12 minutes of an audition. Is that all it is? It's just 10 or 12 minutes? I, that's all we get, really. Cause, wow. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of painful and not fair because you see... It's swift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, it's one of my many frustrations as a creative in the opera industry. Um, but I, I milk that 12 minutes for all it's worth and I I want to get the best out of a singer, which I think is often not the mindset a singer comes into the room with. It's they're judging me, um, they're judging me, they want me to slip up, etc., etc. And I, I, I evangelize about this. Two young singers, um, my partner is a tenor, I have mantras for him when going into auditions. And, I, and that, the main thing is you cannot go into a room of people more willing for you to succeed and wanting you to do well. And it's, I think that's a hard thing for singers to understand. So my job as a panel member is to try and give them the best audition experience so I can see what they have to offer. That's my attitude. And how, how quickly 
do you know and what do you see? I know it's a very, it's a very <laughs> vague question, but you know, is it is it an instinctive thing for you that when you're because it's a very quick turnaround? Is it something that yeah, we're going to be able to work together? Is it as simple as that, or is it that, or is there something else? Um, I think the no's are obvious. Some of the yeses are immediate. If they're showing you everything they have to give straight away and you don't have to pull that out of them, wonderful. Um, and it's the people who go, oh, make you go kind of, oh, on the first rendition of the aria when you sit up and take notice. And then they, then they continue to show you, you that exciting thing or develop that exciting thing or add something else when you give them the space to do so. You then, under, I think... Yeah, I, I I love being in the casting process because I have quite a strong instinct of who I connect with. Yeah, and I think it's it's, it's a lovely thing in an audition, isn't it, to be surprised yeah. by what somebody brings. Yes. Because again, one does one's preparation, works on the piece, starts to form ideas inevitably about you know a voice type, a character type, a build. It can be an, mm. any number of different things, and someone walks in the room who isn't any of the things that you'd imagined yeah. but you suddenly think oh yes it could be that yeah. and presumably um, and, draw, and you know, being able to draw on those things too I think is, is, is really important I mean I've, I've always felt as, as a conductor that you know and I, I think it's an important dimension of the director's role as well that it, you know, in the end you're not the person who's actually doing it on stage <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's in extremis for the director because they're not actually involved in the performance yeah. as a conductor yes I'm involved in the performance but I am silent and, and actually, I think it's a terrifying role actually <laughs> because, <laughs> well, because you you're know, in the audience you can't do anything know, yeah, and, that, and you're there just having to keep the ship afloat yeah. not that I'm suggesting yeah. that it's a yeah. ship that's about to capsize <laughs> but, but that, that, that whole question then in, in these roles is actually about, about drawing from as well as being able to provide yeah. the kind of framework and 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 ideas to to help to shape something as well, but it's always a two-way process, which I think is sometimes a bit underestimated in the roles of in the, in how the roles of conductor and director are viewed, because they are sometimes still sadly viewed as kind of autocratic type positions. Mm. So what uh, I think what I'm drawing from that is that it's really important for both of you not to necessarily go into the audition process with a preconceived idea of what the finished product will be like. Absolutely. But you, you have to allow yourself um, the possibility that you will meet someone who you didn't expect, that they will work in a way that challenged your own perspectives, and then you will then go away and come up with something based on mm. what you've seen. That's particularly true when one's dealing with young singers who yes. are still in training. You know, if one decided to cast the Rape of Lucretia and had an unlimited budget... Um, a music director and a director could sit there and look through the lists of all the singers in the world and think, ah, no, I'll have this one, this one, this one, and this one, and I'll have my perfect cast. Well, and what I know a shame. How I would make it. <laughs> what a shame that would be, actually. Yes. In some ways. Yes, yes. I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not So you're both, yeah. actually, but, you're but both. Because we're working with these younger singers, we have to be, you know, who are in training and, you know, who have voices that are in, still in stages of development. Again, it's, it's particularly important that one works quite carefully with that and guides the production into something that really does work for them now. Yeah. So how has your uh, um, perspective, understanding, appreciation of the work which is problematic in itself, but how, how has that changed, or how did it change from audition period to production? 
Do you mean primarily in relation to the singers? Because obviously the, much of the bulk of the creative work was done after the casting. Or do you mean in general? And uh, I'm, from... I'm talking about your personal perspective and sort of your 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 uh, vision of how it would be brought to the stage. Did it change at all once you'd once I th- you'd completed the audition phase? Um, it certainly did because that was that was when I really got going and allowed myself to be. Um, continuing in dialogue with with Jonathan and with our designer Lizzie um I think part of that of course had to do with the casting um I couldn't say I couldn't nail down for you for certain what elements of that came from the casting um but it certainly fed into it now since we had uh, a sense of their voices and of their physicalities and of what they offered in the audition acting wise um I think what was what was really important and what's changed more since we've been in the rehearsal room, not necessarily to my vision, um, but really is is the opening up of dialogue within the rehearsal room on a regular basis with these young people about their responses to the issues that are being brought up in the piece. And since, uh, since so much of the concept is based on a contemporary reading of and contemporary impressions of, of all of the issues raised and the links that they make to contemporary dialogue and media and news, um, being as responsive as I can to the input being offered uh, in relation to those dialogues by every single cast uh, and cover cast member and allowing them to be part of that dialogue and find their own connections to the piece has been really, really important and has, although not necessarily changed the staging, it has changed the way we work in the rehearsal room and changed my vision ever so slightly for each character and their narrative and how that might how that might be augmented and improved and developed. Um, and I'd rather work in that way, particularly with a piece like this, and allow them to find their way through it than to say, you all have to have my strident feminist perspective on all of these things, have read all of the articles that I've read, be involved in all these dialogues, blah, 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 blah. I've really wanted them to take ownership of where they connect and how that informs them. So it's been more about freeing them, I think, to mm. take ownership mm. than massively changing things I'd nailed down in advance. Mm. Very slightly unconventionally, I started the first full day of music calls at the end of April, not by talking about what's the rhythm here or <laughs> what are the notes there, but we had a 10 minute discussion about, well, not a dis- it was a discussion, but I simply said, what does this piece mean to you? Mm. What are the things that strike you about it? And I said, please start thinking about it all now. And then this has been expanded on you know, in the rehearsal room over the last two and a half weeks with with, with Laura. And I must admit, I've, I found myself rather moved um, listening in on some of the kind of conversations with the cast members um, who clearly have thought very deeply about the difficult issues that this piece raises and what it means for them and what it means now. And all of that absolutely can't but affect the way we respond to them Mm. and I hope the way they respond to us as well. But uh, that's been an important dimension here. They're they're not simply there to be, they are there to be guided and directed by us in our different ways, but actually, again, that has to be a dialogue, even with younger singers in training that- Especially with- And if we're going to get away from something you said you know, uh, before we started this conversation about the, the po-facedness that can sometimes surround opera and and what we call classical music. I think one of the ways of getting around that is actually to be more open 
about exploring what these works mean to us now. I am. Um, I'm sort of aware. I'm sort of aware that we're, the three of us are talking about something that we all know pretty well, uh, but yeah. um, that there may be some people listening who don't. I'm sorry, I just need to look at the I need to look at the dial to make sure we've got enough time. Um, somebody, I just need somebody to tell me about Lucretia. I need I need a synopsis, and I need I need someone to just give me some bullets on what those issues are. Synopsis or issues first? Which would you like? Let's start with the synopsis because that's the reasonably straightforward thing to cover. You want to do that? You wrote one. I did write one for the prep. Why? Well, that's me off the hook. Oh, I see then, the way surely. he works. I see um, that. Oh, but you, it's your you turn, Jonathan. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm happy to. I'm actually, I'm happy. It might be worth weaving in some issues and yes. the way yeah, I yeah, tell it because yeah. they, they come up yeah. pretty um, easily. Uh, I suppose it's worth qualifying. It's quite a difficult synopsis to, to tell because you have two layers going on at the same time, as well you both know. She says, looking at you earnestly, like, <laughs> I'm telling you for the first time. Yes. Um, no, you must so assume you have, you're telling us for the first time. I, I am indeed. Uh, so you have two layers going on, um, which are the, the framing device of the male and female chorus who are telling the story of the rape of Lucretia, which is um, a, a legend written down by uh, many writers, interpreted by many writers. Um, uh, and they are quite mysterious characters that have been interpreted, and I think, in a myriad of different ways and different productions. Um, but they claim to be uh, sort of Christian interpreters of a pagan story, and they relate um, the story of Lucretia, the wife of uh, Roman general Calatinus. General, yeah, he's a general. Mm. Um, uh, and this is. T- during the time of the, the rule of the Etruscans, um, Tarquinius Sextus has taken the throne by many murders and Machiavellian tricks, and his son, uh, Tarquinius, wait, wrong way around, Tarquinius, I'm so sorry, <laughs> Roman names, Etruscan names. So there are two Tarquinii, as we call them, Tarquinius the king and Tarquinius the prince. The prince is the one we're interested in, he is involved in the action. He is uh, in the army and he's, uh, Colatinus, Lucretia's husband, is his colleague, and together with Junius, another army member, the three of them are discovered in, in our first scene, essentially um, having a bit of locker room talk about women. So some generals had ridden back uh, before the beginning of the piece uh, to see if their wives were still chaste uh, in, in Rome and discovered that all but Lucretia were cheating on their husbands who were away uh, in the army. So they're all getting very drunk and talking about this, um, Junius's own wife has cheated on him and Junius is very bitter about this and essentially challenges Tarquinius to go and test Lucretia's virtue. Tarquinius rides straight to Rome, crosses the river Tiber on his horse, uh, arrives at Lucretia's house where she uh, and her servants, Bianca and Lucia, are in the original, are spinning. Uh, in our version they are um, darning army socks and uh, winding wool <laughs> and uh, he essentially um, a- arrives announces himself and claims hospitality from Lucretia who has to put him up because he's the prince so she gives him a room and then he goes into her room uh, and violates her um, at which point the chorus pray for a bit more on that later um, and then we discover the next morning Lucia and Bianca are arranging beautiful flowers in the sunlight. Lucretia appears um, affected from the night before 
that Tarquinius has ridden off uh, back to the camp. Uh, and Lucretia uh, breaks down and asks for a messenger be, to be sent to Calatinus. Calatinus and Junius, uh, Junius has come with him. They arrive. Um, Lucretia has has gone off to get changed, um, which is handy to get a blood pack under the costume. But also, okay. Okay. there's great stage management <laughs> right. by Britton and Duncan. But she's gone. She's gone off. She's made a resolution, really, from my point of view, before she leaves the stage at the end of her big aria, that she is going to kill herself. She goes off stage. She comes back in what is described in the in the score as purple morning, which is interpreted differently in our production. But she comes in, it's supposed to be a big entrance, and tells Calatinus what's happened to her. He forgives her, uh, but she said the shame is too much, and she stabs herself. Junius declares that there needs to be a revolution based on this. Um, and the other characters mourn, and female chorus and male chorus finish the piece by asking if, if uh, in their words, if, if it is all, uh, and male chorus says, we must trust in Jesus, and uh, he forgives all sins and all trespasses, and everything's fine. Off we go. <laughs> um, yeah, I was struck by how when you were telling me that, or telling us that, uh, you were quite careful about using the word violated as opposed to rape. I don't know whether I'm reading too much into that. Well, I think because the rape is not staged within no. the score. The moment that the rape is supposed to happen, the chorus turn away and pray, and literally the curtain is supposed to come down. It's in the stage directions in the score. Duncan has written, or Britain's written, that the curtain comes down, so you're not supposed so to see it. So we never see it? No. No. Okay. We're not, well, we're not supposed to. And that, for me, is one of the central issues that, that provoked our concept. Uh, which is about this problematic Christian element. So one of the things that all directors and many audience members and um, people with you know who think about the piece have this issue with, and it is problematic, the chorus being these two Christian uh, commentators who bring in references to Christianity that seem incongruous with the rest of the piece and seem, especially at the end with the epilogue, seem inadequate mm. as responses to the central story. Mm. Um, and so for me, I was fascinated by the fact that they can't or won't look at or narrate yeah. the act that is in the title of the piece. Yes. Mm. Yes. So that's, I suppose that's why I say, because I think it's, it's we, um, we see a certain amount of violation. We do not see the rape. Um, okay. But yes, he does. I, I suppose I. I, I wasn't wanting chose to my, draw. No, I chose my words because you spent all morning staging it, and yes. I'm a little sensitive. Yeah, no, that, that, that's fine. Um, but I, I just that, no, you're right. That's one of the one of the aspects of it that that um, that I too find quite problematic. And and actually, I was reading it. Um, I was. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to get a book because <laughs> a, I was reading some research about it. I love Lucretia, even though... Oh, it's amazing, um, isn't it? <laughs> even though it's... Uh, I wouldn't normally do this, but this is my trusty Britain book. Um, I'll tell you about this later. Can but, I borrow it? <laughs> uh, it's full of salacious detail. Uh, Humphrey wow. Carpenter was an amazing chap. Joan Bakecourt. Okay. I'm not sure whether you're... Not Joan Bakewell. I'm sorry, she's still alive, and it wasn't Joan Bakewell. <laughs> jo um, Baker said... Janet. Oh, Janet yes, Baker, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm sorry. She was in the original she, cast. She was in the original cast. She said... 
Janet Baker, who sang the title role in the 60s, agrees that Lucretia has, quote, an underlying fear that she may yield to Tarquinius. Quote, if she, if she weren't in danger from his sexuality, she wouldn't be frightened. If she had been emotionally uninvolved, she wouldn't have felt guilty after the rape. And when <sighs> I... Is, so so here's, yes, the, here's the interesting yes, thing. When mm-hmm. I read that, I bought that book 20 years ago, yeah, and I read yeah. it cover to cover, and I, I found it utterly absorbing. Mm. And because I knew that I was doing this... I returned to that mm-hmm. and I found that quote and I read it and like you on the bus from Lewisham I thought wow in pre- in the present day that is mm-hmm. that is difficult reading and I think that if she had been interviewed today you mm. know if it, if it had premiered a year ago and she probably wouldn't have answered any question about it to, because well, she certainly wouldn't have said that well I don't think differently yeah. mm. Mm. Um, what is your reaction to that um, I, I have very strong reactions to that and it was interesting for me um, actually it was just a little something that I think it came up in the auditions and um, Jennifer her department turned around to me and and just brought we were having some general chat because it was the first time we'd had to since I think I had my interview for the job that we kind of had a little natter in between auditions about the piece and she said oh I've always found that line in the forest of my dreams you've always been the tiger a bit problematic like does she want him does she not want him mm. and I, I prickle at that because... Well, you prickle at her reaction? I, I, no, the, no, no, no. I, I prickle the at the suggestion. And this has been suggested again and again, I think mostly by male directors, mm-hmm. who say, oh, but there's a, there's a complication in whether Lucretia is perhaps attracted to him. Maybe she is. It's, oh, but, you know, all those lines that Tarquinius has, like, uh, Tarquinius essentially says, you want me, you want me, you want me. He has a mm. lot of lines that are saying, mm-hmm. but look at your lips, look at your eyes, your, yes. your body is responding to me. I mean, um, there's no ambiguity in those lines. It's quite clear what yeah. he's saying. So I, 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 there's several stages. I'll try and be concise. There's several stages to my reaction. One is that no means no. Mm-hmm. No is no. Two is that he's the only one who ever says, you, look, yes. you want me. Yes. So there's n- absolutely no uh, reason that, that that's true. Secondly, it's very clear in the score that she is supposed to be, she's dreaming of her husband mm-hmm. and is kissed while she's asleep and she responds physically as she wakes up. But once she realises it's him, she knows it's him and she continually says no. Mm. So there may be a residual physical response from her dream, if, if there is any, if he's not just fantasising. The third thing is, uh, so I stuck to that and then I was doing a lot of research just ahead of the rehearsals to get really really embedded in as much understanding as possible and I came across an extraordinary TED talk which is about cognitive dissonance in physical and mental reaction mm-hmm. um, which I don't I don't assumed anyway from the no means no but it was really interesting in the the just the specifics of scientifically that the brain can say one thing and the body can say yes. another and that works both ways your yes. brain can say yes 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 take me now and your body goes no, sorry. Yeah. And that causes many rifts in many partnerships, I think, and sort of sexual partnerships where someone says, but you you don't, your body's not saying that. And stepping away, actually, it's interesting that you said that because when I, when I read that, that is what I was thinking, mm. that even if you step away from this contentious issue, the fact is, uh, as many people who have suffered from sexual assault will yeah. say, that actually you can you can hold two dissonant thoughts exactly and that isn't reflected in anything that's or as far as i can see anything that's written about no the opera at the time so yeah. so actually i would and this this scientific um information backs up even if she is having a physical sexual response it doesn't matter if her brain is saying no mm. 
So it, it, for me, it's just a non-issue. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I, I think one of the things that we've, we've talked about mm. here and that, that is interesting and challenging about this opera that perhaps is one of the things that's allowed the space for some of those kind of observations to have been made, and of mm. course it's not just Janet Baker, there are several people, is that it, it, it is a, an opera that's kind of curiously kind of short on character development. <laughs> yeah. So, for yeah. example, you know, one never finds out really what is the relationship between Calatinus and Lucretia. Mm. We don't really find out very much. and you know, None of the characters really develop in the piece, in it, apart from the fact that probably Lucretia, who, who develops, in, of course, in a self-annihilating way because mm. of what's happened to mm. her. Mm. And I wonder if that's one of the things that has you know, left some, some kind of spaces that people have tried to kind of fill mm. with, with, with these kind of ideas. But as Laura says, you know, you only have to look at the text. <laughs> and she says no. Yeah. Repeatedly. Yeah. Repeatedly, repeatedly. And of course, you know, the, the whole business about the rape scene comes out of, of a background of this very casual locker room banter. Mm-hmm. And we have made a number of references to to Me Too and Trump and all that kind of stuff when we've been talking about about this piece, you know, it, the, the, what Tarquinius goes and does arises from a rather casual view of men about women's sexuality, their kind of paranoia about the idea of chastity and where that arises from and what that means. Yeah. So I, so I, I, I can't see any ambiguity. No, I just I, it's I a it non-issue for me when it. <laughs> When I reflect on it now, uh, I mean, I first came to, into contact with Lucretia in '97 in, in a production in Oldborough, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I remember being chilled by it. I remember being chilled by it because we didn't see the rape scene. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's all set up in the music in the run up mm. to the, the rape mm-hmm. scene, and it is chilling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, when I look over that quote and I think about the production that you're working on, actually, I sort of look on Britain and think, well, actually, it's quite prophetic, in a way. Do you, is that, am I, again, reading too much into it? or Because it is well, very, a, very topical now. Yes. Mm. I mean, maybe that's just a kind of coincidence of events that we happen to have... You know, we, we didn't choose to, to, to put on the rape of Lucretia in response to events that have been no. happening. I mean, you know, the reason for choosing the operas at Trinity Laban tends to be rather more prosaic than that. We need to look at, you know, who, who do we have amongst the student body in the vocal department and therefore what's the short list of operas we feel able to cast strongly. Um, in order that the students involved have a good experience. But by doing it, that means that you also have a sort of a slightly more three-dimensional educational experience. I'm sorry to no, no, no. reduce the creative process down to that. That makes it a far richer thing, as I think you yes. were explaining, yeah. Laura. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And that's an important. That's also been an important thing for me in the rehearsal room and my role as a director. Um, I. What interests me, having had a conservatoire education, which was very wonderful uh is the relationship between and having an insider's knowledge about the relationship between classes uh undergone by vocal students um and what opportunities they have for bringing together the very different skills that a singer is required to juggle in a production Mm. and it's not part of my job description to teach them 
although obviously in my interview I was asked about my approach to working with young singers but I I am and have continued to be focusing and making time for um room for pedagogy and it is a it is a learning process I'm not I am not working with them like I would professional singers. I'm working with them uh, as students and I'm taking time for teaching moments and I'm making sure that they have warm-ups that incorporate different skills into what they then offer in the rehearsal room. I'm doing training that I know isn't necessarily offered um, and the opportunity to bring skills together, which you can't just do at the drop of a hat as a singer. You can't just suddenly go, right, I'm incorporating my acting and my singing and my movement and my physicality and this and this and this at the same time straight away so I'm doing as much as I can but it's not it's not automatically a holistic process it has I mean in terms of their experience they have to go A to B to C yeah. and now I now today I'm focusing on my singing tomorrow I'm going to add movement tomorrow the next day I'm going to add acting and being aware of those layers and I think on the flip side of that the most exciting thing is is for me that student performers uh are more open to experimentation and mm -hmm. being involved in the process in a much more experimental and explorative way than a room of professional singers at a big opera house who who I think if we went in for some of the warm-ups that we've been doing and conversations and exercises we've been doing they'd go no thank you talk to my agent they just want to do it yes mm -hmm. okay yeah I get you yeah. and I don't work in that way and, and you know, no and I, mean, I think you know that that attitude and approach has its kind of limitations and one might feel frustrated by that the, the other side of it I guess is that you know if you're talking about the kind of singers at the Royal Opera House that they actually have learned all this absolutely stuff, and that you can assume that they do know how to arrive at a music rehearsal fully prepared absolutely. and warm up at a production rehearsal fully and that they have their routines of, of warm-ups and yeah. psychological and physical preparation they know that Whereas I think it's been great to see the work that, that you and, and Katrina have done with them, actually, to, to help equip them with some have of that stuff, because they don't all have it. Mm. Have they rehearsed with the orchestra yet? Because uh, it's I, on the 5th, 6th and 7th, isn't it? I'm going to be really, really pedantic now. 6th, 7th and 8th. I'm going to six, be really pedantic okay. now and say there isn't, brace, a, there brace. Isn't, there isn't an orchestra. Ooh. Well, I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with them. Qualify, it Jonathan, is, it qualify. Is, uh, it is a chamber <laughs> orchestra. It is. I, a, it's I, not I, a string quartet well, I, I'm, and a wind I, quartet. I, I'm, being, ah. I'm, I'm, I'm prepared I'm, to wrestle I'm, I'm, with I'm, you. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to use the, the expression chamber ensemble. Oh, okay. Ah. What's, to, in to me, What's in the score? What does it say in the score? It, what it says in the score is mm -hmm. that there is a wind quintet, yeah. a harp, percussion player, really? a piano, and a string quintet. Really? Then I'm terribly sorry that you've had to be pedantic. You are, in fact, correct. <laughs> yes. Not that it's a competition. Oh, it is. I don't want to be splitting hairs about it, but, but, but one of the things that I kind of find really interesting about Lucretia is the fact that this piece was written only a year after Grimes. Yes, yes. And so you're talking about this grand opera with a large chorus, a big cast, a symphony orchestra in the pit, and only a year later... You go down to a cast of eight. It is eight, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's a quintet and a cast, quartet a cast of eight. and percussionist. And although you have a, oh, you know, a, a male chorus and a female chorus, so mm. called, they are still individual voices. Not so. The chorus has disappeared, and and you have this ensemble of soloists. 
And to me, there's something very, very important about the way that the ensemble of soloists that is the, the cast mm. meets with, connects, interacts, intertwines with this ensemble of soloistic instrumental voices. And to me, it's not an orchestral concept. I, that's, I, that's why I, I'm being I, pedantic. I get your point. I get your point. I've taken it. I've made a mental note. We will never, we will never uh, talk of this again. Uh, the reason for asking was, uh, I, I completely agree with you. I think the thing that I fell in love with when I first heard Lucretia was the, the sparseness yeah. of his mm. score and the fact that there were direct links between that and his work for the GPO. Mm -hmm. And he worked in Blackheath. I mean, he mm -hmm. essentially, one of his first paid jobs was around the corner in Blackheath. Um, and and I love that that sparse sound. The thing that I'm really drawn to are moment, probably more the moments in the score where he, um, he used the harp to depict crickets. And mm. there is a, um, I think it's a low alto flute and something I'm being quite nerdy now, but there is something about the sound that he creates in that moment where you just have a feeling of, my God, it's really hot. Mm. It's unbearably hot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, With and some of those cloying yeah. consordino strings at yes. the beginning with the little harps and then the, the bullfrogs in the bass pizzicato. Yes, I mean, exactly. It's absolutely virtuosic writing all the time. And yeah, some of the, some of the moments, the, the, you know, the moment and, you know, before Lucretia takes her life at the end where she's singing in that wonderful adagio just with the corongli it's yeah. just lucretia's line with the solo corongli uh, kind of twining yeah. together and i'm just and, and in the context of an opera and only a year after this huge and extraordinary piece that's peter grimes to have just Yes. Gone down to a point like that which is almost you know kind of it was a bedian in its in in that kind of it was pragmatism too, though, wasn't it? I think I'm fairly certain that, but in from the histories, that oh, the yeah, reason that he'd gone that direction was because post Grimes, he didn't want to work with a with a big well, uh, with a big team that's anymore. The kind of whole money thing, uh, yeah, a bit like Stravinsky writing the Soldier's Tale after those big Russian ballets. I'm so uh, but, yeah. yeah. So to, yeah, to what extent they're making making a virtue of necessity? Mm. Uh, have, so have the singers heard that? Have they heard the orchestration yet? Uh, well, I hope so. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> or have done they sung, homework. or rather, have they sung with but that yet? But they've not yet sung with the ensemble, okay. no. Because I, I wonder what, what change that will week. bring to them in the, yeah. in oh, the start of the year. It will be very exciting, It's I think. an enormous change, as it always is, mm. because, I mean, we, we, we have a wonderful chief repetitor, mm. Paul Childers, who's a fantastic player and incredibly sensitive to everything to which he needs to be sensitive. But with the best will in the world, on the piano, mm. it doesn't fit you to, for a singer to sing against or with a piano is such a different experience. Yeah. The way that the, the voice reacts to the sound of strings or a single corongle mm. or singing with the side drum and the muted mm. and the hand-stopped horn in some of the vivace sections at the beginning of the piece. All those things affect vocal timbre as well. And will, of course, inform character. And I, um, I, I'm reminded that I once did a, a film about classical music for... I went back to my old school. It was for the proms. Uh, and 
and I went back to my old school to see whether I could stand up in front of a classroom full of kids <laughs> and try and get them to listen to classical music. And I was terrified by the prospect. For some reason, I thought it would be really interesting to film me doing it. <laughs> and uh, and it was reasonably entertaining because it turned out that actually they are really good at getting sarcasm, and so I was fine. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I did was that I selected a playlist of stuff, uh, and I deliberately didn't tell them the title. Uh, of the stuff that I was playing them and I just wanted to play it and then for them to tell me what they you know what their emotional reaction mm -hmm. was to it and uh, one of the things I played was the uh, goodnight sequence <gasps> oh, wow. at the end of act two act, is it? end of act one, act yeah. one. Um, and I think that is utterly Ooh. chilling yeah. I mean that's part yeah. of the reason yeah. that I find that that moment yeah. chilling yeah. because yeah. it's so utterly gorgeous and it's just one resolution after another resolution after another one um very Britain with a simple scale. Mm. Obviously, I didn't tell them what the title was because that would have been problematic. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I played it to them without any context whatsoever. And every single one of them said, oh, I'm really frightened. You're and kidding. they were nine or ten years old. I wow. And they didn't, you know, it's not like they heard previous scenes they didn't have any synopsis because if I had explained that then parents would have started ringing quite quickly. <laughs> but um, mm. I was really surprised, and that wow. says to me, given how sparse that score is, um, there's a really nasty mm. edge to it. Yeah. Which it's, is... It's at one level luscious in mm. the sound, and then unbearably tense. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It is the, the extension, the extension yeah. of tension. Oh, no, that's happened. Yeah. Um, well, you've so said sorry. it now. <laughs> I've said it. <laughs> and you're now laughing It rhymes, it. it must be true. Um... <laughs> It's been something really interesting actually, that leads me to just say something about what we found in the rehearsal room is is what's extraordinary about the score is it asks it demands uh, a whole range of of acting and singing styles from incredibly naturalistic mm. in the recit for example mm. to these held moments that are extended and you yes. cannot possibly yeah. just add action to them you have no. to find a way of pulling a moment out so that I mean you do this for all opera of course because it doesn't happen in real time um, if it's particularly if it's fully scored, you have to extend your emotion and maintain the intention in a way that an actor in the theatre doesn't. Mm. You have to learn this means of acting where you can stay focused in a single intention and action for much, much longer than it would happen in real life. Mm. And that's one of those moments that we I'm particularly grateful to have our, our movement director, Christina Fulco, with us because she's able to assist me in helping and the singers to find a way to physically extend an action and extend emotionally a connection um, in in a, a moment as extraordinary as that without going into tableau, which is cheesy yes. and yes. boring. Mm. Um, but it's a real, I mean, Britain throws down a gauntlet of, right, direct yes. this. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, it's absolutely. hard. Absolutely, yeah. Several yeah. different... No, and, and, and surprise in that sense. Yeah. It's surprising, really, given that uh, in relation to, say, Grimes, it is a much shorter work, mm. Mm -hmm. is it not? I'm looking at you, hopefully, yeah, yeah, I've I just was, not yeah, made yeah, myself look like an yeah, arse. Two God, hours. It's just over two hours yeah. for Lucretia. I can't remember quite how long Grimes runs, but I'm sure it's more than that. Yeah. Yes, that's, that's probably one of the reasons. I mean, it's a very reflective thing. It's a very thought-provoking work. That's probably why I got completely absorbed by it. Mm. Uh, not least because I also had to act as a stage manager and props man and find all <laughs> sorts of ridiculous things for an overambitious director. Um, I, I, you just, you know, that was I'm just going to, for your ago. listeners, you did have a little extension of the hand to me on overambitious no, director. No, 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 no I was pointing over there. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what have you most enjoyed so far in this production, please? 
Oh dear, I wasn't No, no, I was, I was looking at Jonathan. Jonathan looks like he's about to say something, so I was just being polite and giving him... Well, uh, what have I most enjoyed so far? I think the thing I have most enjoyed so far is, is the extent of the openness and willingness of the students in the cast to engage with this very difficult material. Because it could have been, you know... It, this could be a really, really difficult piece to do with a cast that is not able to be open and engaged and generous with one mm. another in sharing their responses to this material. Because it's a piece that could... I Crash and burn. But it also yeah. could break people, presumably. So you've got to be open and willing. That they've been working on this morning, the rape scene uh, with, with Lucretia and Tarquinius. You know, if, if, the, the, if the two people playing those roles are not able to find that openness with one another, mm. physically, that trust in one another, that sense of trust in what's in the room around them... Mm. You kind of you haven't got a piece, have you? You haven't got you haven't got a production, and, and you know, that that's the kind of apex of it. But mm. the same kind of openness and generosity and trust is required all around it, if the piece is actually going to find its mark. Mm. Is that not a reflection of both your personalities and your approach, though? Uh, I think if they feel able to do that, is that not because you've created this? I hate to use the word space, but I have done so. Well, we you were know, talking we're earlier about about. The, the, these roles that we have, the kind of peculiar kind of mm. you know, non-performing kind of um, roles, but yes, we ha we have to find in our different ways the means to make the space for them to work. And mm. for them. So yes, I hope that hope that's that, helped. That, that, that that's helped. Yeah. But but you, this is the thing with the work we do. We to, to some extent we can only create a frame. Mm. And, and, and we can encourage people who are actually going to sing and play these roles to fill that frame, but we can't make them. No, no, okay. Um, and I think that's, that's the thing for me that, is, that has been the most okay. rewarding aspect so far to feel that that's happened. Uh, unlike the breakfast question. I have, I have a favourite if you want to know. You have, you have a favourite? No, you want to... Laura's favourite. My favourite thing. Yeah. Unless yes, you'd like to know. Yes, that's what I was going to. No, oh, okay, that's what I was on. turning to. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I will. I can tell you again yeah. what no, happened. No, no, don't worry. We won't get into it with that because that would. No be, one must that know. That would what be I a had really male thing, and that would be really bad, <laughs> um, uh, and would be completely at odds with the production that you're working on. Um, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Uh, no, no, not at all. Uh, <laughs> we're going to keep all of that in because I think that makes it quite normal. Marvelous. So, what is your been? What's your been? Your what? What has been your favourite thing? I, I will actually would like to develop upon what Jonathan has said and extend that to the generosity of colleagues, not just Jonathan, but uh, my incredible designer, Lizzie Leach, mm. uh, who has been an extraordinary collaborator and worked incredibly hard on finding a shared vision. Um, and then to, to our movement director, Christina, uh, and to our fight coordinator um, Alison Deberg who was with us this morning doing her who third I session. Who I was the director. I went up to the That's all right. Hello, she's, I mean, she should be. She's <laughs> she's incredible and uh, having an, a female fight director is yeah, extraordinary. Hey. But just uh, the whole team 
feels like, at least from my perspective, the whole production and creative team feels passionate about what we're trying to say mm-hmm. and to have, because of, I can't, I said this to the cast last week, we had a, a little sit down and a check-in of where everyone was with their connection to the production. And I said to them, you know, I, I don't want to assume that you're all going on the same passionate emotional journey that I am with this production. Um, and I don't want to assume that of my, my colleagues on the creative and production team, but it feels like we all care not just about the success of the, of a show, which one always does, but that we're all invested emotionally in a way that I find so incredibly uh, unusual, actually, sometimes for, for these projects and, and for a production. I, I have never been so emotionally in, invested in wanting to say something with a piece. And I, I am privileged to be alongside what feels like a room full of people, cast and team, who want to say that or a version of that with me mm-hmm. and are being very generous with their vulnerability and their emotions and mm-hmm. their their performance or whatever they offer to the show and that for me is the pinnacle of everything we're doing whether the show is reviewed well or not my goodness we're making something that we care about and we believe in and I couldn't ask for anything more than that uh, that seems like a really lovely way to end. <laughs> I'm concerned that we've gone for 50 minutes and you've not had a swig of water. Oh, I haven't. I was. <laughs> Which I... Me a little. I don't want to be too caring, but but um, are you get all right? me talking? You know, are you yeah. okay? I'm fine. Right. Yeah, and thank you. And you haven't you. had your lunch. Neither of you have had your lunch, and your rehearsal is about to start. My rehearsal started <laughs> now. Yeah. Uh, there's one. There are two other things that are That's very very quick to do. Fine. Which is number one. I need your names and what you do, please. We always oh, do yes. this at the end rather than at the beginning. Uh-huh. Uh, so who are you, why are you here, what do you do? <laughs> uh, my name is Laura Attridge um, and I'm the director of the Rape of Lucretia for Trinity Laban Conservatoire. I am also a librettist. And so you know. <laughs> where can one find you on the Twitter? On Twitter I am at Laura underscore Attridge. Uh, my website's lauraattridge.com. Handy. <laughs> so. I'm Jonathan Tilbrook, I'm the conductor and music director for this production. Um, i work at Trinity Laban Conservatory of Music and Dance as Head of Orchestral Studies. Oh, what a grand title. Mm. Yeah. Better that's than nice. mine. That's me. You look slightly surprised. <laughs> <laughs> You've just said your title out loud and gone, oh, oh yes. Right. God, that is Quite what I do, is that I get paid to do that. Uh, and can we find you on the Twitter? No. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, that, that, that's not being me being... Um, you don't do that kind just, of thing. I just, I'm not on it. And that's he has okay. a life. That's fine. I, I, I can see that. The Trinity Laban production of Benjamin Britten's Rape of Lucretia runs on the 6th, 7th and 8th of July at Stratford Circus Arts Centre. Tickets are £15. Thanks to director Laura Attridge and music director Jonathan Tilbrook for their generosity sparing the time to talk about the work they love and allowing this podcast to encroach on their subsequent rehearsal. Please rate like and share the thoroughly good podcast uh, on whatever platform you have access to and wherever you have the most followers on if you'd like to get in touch with me john jacob tweet me at thoroughly good it is really lovely to hear from people so do please uh, and also like the thoroughly good blog on facebook or email me john.jacob at thoroughly good.me thank you very much for listening